Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes an in-depth look at the films of Dolph Lundgren. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and today is another special bonus episode. Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with screenwriter Steve Latshaw. Latshaw is an extremely accomplished and prolific presence in the genre, with experience writing and directing dozens of action films, many of which starring some of the biggest names in the business. Steve Latshaw has written films for the likes of Jean-Claude Van Damme, Jeff Speakman, Michael Dudikoff, Brian Bosworth, and of course, Dolph Lundgren. One of the films that Lundgren and Latshaw collaborated on was the excellent Command Performance. In this movie, Lundgren took on the role of action hero and director as he worked both behind and in front of the camera. Lundgren plays an ex-biker turned rock and roll drummer who becomes a one-man army when terrorists take over a rock concert in Moscow. America's biggest pop star has come for the command performance, and the president and his daughters are the guests of honor. Until a group of kidnappers go, go, go. crash the party. I fully expect the money by midnight, or I will begin executing the hostages. Now, the fate of the country rests in the hands of one man. Lundgren. Command performance. I guess the show's over. Command performance happens to be one of my favorite films in the extensive filmography of Dolph, so it was an honor being able to chat with one of the creative minds who assisted Dolph in bringing this project to life. In this discussion, Latshaw and I chat, command performance, the screenwriting process, writing scripts for the action guys during the VHS boom of the 90s, and what he has coming up in the next year. It was an absolute honor and privilege being able to speak with yet another talent for this show. So for your listening pleasure is my conversation with screenwriter Steve Latshaw on I Must Break, this podcast. Yes, hi, Mr. Latshaw. Yes. Hey, how are you, sir? I'm good. Hey, thank you so much for, for taking the time uh, with me today. I'll, of course, be respectful of your time, but um, I, I really admire your work, and uh, I've really been looking forward to uh, to chatting with you today. Well, Dolph is one of my favorite people, so I'm happy to talk about it. Oh, very cool, very cool. Well, you, I mean, you've worked with quite a few action stars, especially um, a lot of the action stars in the uh, in the 90s. How does uh, how would you say Dolph compares to to all the other guys like Michael Dudikoff and Brian Bosworth and and all those dudes? Bosworth was a very nice guy. Um, when I came to the set, I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but he's a nice guy. Everybody liked him. Uh, Dudikoff was an interesting guy. Uh, he's he's very nice to me. I really enjoyed working for him. I like his uh, always liked his films. Dudikoff had a particular way that his care he liked his characters to be presented in a script. He 
he didn't want to talk a lot about who he was. He loved having a scene early on where a couple of other principals would be talking about his character, and then, boom, he'd enter the room. Um, Before we did a movie called Black Horizon, I went down and spent a couple hours down with him in Long Beach talking about the script, and and, uh, just a really nice guy. He uh, spent most of the time showing me pictures of his um, home that he built on a cliffside overlooking the ocean, pretty much by scratch. And uh, um, I actually, with a, a couple of friends of mine, with Chris Mitchum and Patrick Moran, who I'd written some films with before, we actually wrote a script that sort of featured a lot of those uh, stars from that era, an action film called uh, uh, Slaughterhouse Watchdogs, which we have not set up anywhere yet, but that had, it, uh, it was... The character Dudikoff would play in that was very much based on the guy that I I know. But uh, let's see. And uh, Speakman, I worked with Speakman um, on two films. And he liked to be heavily involved in the scripts, but that's a whole another story. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I did a film with Jean-Claude Van Damme, and he was an interesting guy. Um, he was very nice to me. And that's a film that later came out as In Hell, I believe, is what it was called. Dolph is very smart, as as you know. He's very savvy. He's very funny. He does a wicked Sylvester Stallone imitation. <laughs> he's a huge fan of Clint Eastwood and aspires to have Clint's career as both a director and an actor. Um I remember one meeting he quoted he quoted the all of Clint's dialogue from uh, Unforgiven to me. Uh faultless imitation. Uh he's a charming guy, he's a he's a um, very story savvy. Um I had initially well I can go through the history, it's up to you whether you want to ask it in formal questions. Yeah, no, no, I mean, the, the one thing that, um, I mean, I have a lot of things to say about uh, Mr. Lundgren, but yeah, you know, I, I think one of the um, advantages that he had to being a director is the fact that he was, I mean, he had been acting in films since 1985, so he had all those years of experience in reading scripts and, you know, behind the camera to where he was able to use that knowledge to um, to hone his craft as as being a director. And so, yeah, all of the films that he's directed, I think, are are some of his best work because he's had, you know, so much experience, um, uh, you know, in front of the camera before he went behind the camera, if that makes sense. Yes, he's similar to Eastwood in that he knows how best to present himself regardless of the character that he's playing. It's not like he's playing the same character every time out, but he's... The thing with Dolph is he's he's just... He's a little bit smarter than everybody else, uh, than his contemporaries, and I don't mean that in a negative way towards them, but he's very tuned into every aspect of filmmaking, from writing to directing to uh, performance, and he's he's also managed to keep himself in, in very good shape. I mean, he's taken care of himself, and so, uh, you know, he's, he's aged much better than some of his contemporaries, and... Um, 
Um, but he's 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 someone who has complete command of the whole filmmaking process, and um, that's obvious when you work with him. It's like you have to be on your A game. Not that he's intimidating or or anything like that. It's just you know you realize. The intent here, when you sit down, the intent here is not to simply grind out product. The intent here is to make something very, very good, or as good as we possibly can within the restrictions of the schedule of the budget and so forth. Well, and I think the fact that he is still, I mean, you know, again, if we compare him to, uh, to, to you know, Jeff Speakman and Michael Dudikoff and Brian Bosworth, you know, and I don't want to discredit those guys by any means, but, you know, Dolph is, is still working and is still a force in the action genre, and those guys have kind of um, stepped away a little bit from, uh, you know, from Hollywood, and so why do you think that is in, in terms of comparing Dolph to those guys? Well, it's a business that is constantly changing, and you have to be very focused on what what's working now and also where the trends are, are going in the future, and you have to you have to be smart enough to continue to generate um, projects for yourself, and you have to. That means you have to constantly have a very real, realistic picture of who you are and where you fit in. You can't just rely on your name value. You can use that. That's an effective tool. But not only is it what you've done in the past, but how do you fit in in the present, and how will you fit in in the future? And you have to kind of take a very big picture approach to all of it. And some of your biggest icons in motion picture history, your 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 John Wayne's and, and particularly your action stars like John Wayne and, and um uh, Clint Eastwood, you know, Harrison Ford, these are all guys that have been able to trade on their past, but they've always always evolved in terms of, of the types of characters they've played and, and always stay contemporary with the marketplace, which is why they all continue to work. You know, you look at Wayne's career alone, and while there are similarities between the movies he was doing in the 30s and the movies he was doing in the 70s, right down to, in, uh, in one case, I think Georgie Sherman was directing him in three Musketeers movies in the 30s, but was also directing him in Big Jake in 19. 19- 71. While Wayne, there are similarities, Wayne was carefully evolving his screen image to um, what it needed to be on a contemporary level. And I think that's one of the things that Dolph has been very careful of. Um, Speakman was the one that sort of went away the earliest, and I think it was because he he had a particular image of himself, and I, I, I don't know why that didn't continue um but he was content to be in a particular arena and that that only lasts so long without evolution and he wasn't able to evolve so michael is a very talented actor and he's also um, a, a talented comedian and um i think in his case um there may have been a point about 15, 16 years ago where his price, his value on the international marketplace may have changed. And I don't think he was, I think he was willing to step away if, if you know, he wasn't going to, see so many of these guys, going back to the 70s, um, where 
they would agree to do, you know, as their name value diminished, they would agree to do lower and lower budget projects to the point where suddenly, by the time we got to the mid to late 80s, early 90s, sort of the end of the first big VHS video boom, it wasn't just that their name value had diminished. It got to the point where if their name was on a film, buyers would instantly tag it as a low-budget film because they'd done so many of them. And at a certain point, some of these guys ended up with negative name value. So, so you know, some people just step away with it, step away from it rather than get to that level. But Dolph has, has I think, what's he in Aquaman now? Yeah, he has a huge year. Yeah, Aquaman, uh, Creed 2, that's going to be coming out a month to the day earlier than Aquaman. I mean, yeah, so this is uh, – 2018 is the year of is the year of Dolph. He's a smart guy, and he he's in for the the long game. You know, he's, he'll be around as long as he wants to be around. And I think he would be doing. I think he would be directing a films without question. And he may yet do this because he's a very gifted director. But he, if he had been in a studio system like Clint Eastwood was in the 60s and early 70s. You know, where films, A films were being made at, at, it didn't take $200 million to make an A film with Clint Eastwood in 1971. And I think, um, I think had he been in that studio system, I, I think he, he would have climbed farther and faster. But with Dolph, there's still plenty of time. Yeah. Well, I'm curious when you, um, when you're writing a script, you know, cause you, you've, I mean, you clearly know the, the action genre. You know, I was wondering when when you're writing a script, do you have the initial story idea in mind, and then do you just run with it, or do you fully outline the entire screenplay first? I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious of your uh, your thought process when you're writing one of these films. Um, it depends. I'll kind of give you a generic example in, and then I'll get into specifics. In, in back when I was working for. Um, Andrew Stevens at Franchise and um, Paul Hertzberg over at Cinetel and Danny um, Werner at, at uh, New Image. At that time, they would frequently have not a story outline, but maybe a, 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 a rough synopsis. They would slap on the back of a of a, of a flyer that had the poster on the front that they'd use to pre-sell a film that at AFM. So they have a rough concept and they may have had a couple of stars attached to it. When I, I know when Royal Oaks and then Franchise, Andrew's company, used to pre-sell these movies, they, they'd get... Here's a classic example. There's a film that I did, I wrote with Jeff Fahey and um, Ernie Hudson called Hijack was the original title. It came out as The Last Siege. It was an action film. They already had a rough outline and... Um, they had pictures of the guy, and they had poster art, and they had a trailer cut together, even though no film had been shot, but they just used clips from other people's movies. And they'd pre-sell various overseas territories based on that. Then they'd come to you as the writer for one of these films. And they'd say, okay, here's the rough concept. Uh, we need you to do a two- or three-page outline. So you'd write an outline. In the case of Last Seizure, Hijack, I actually rewrote from page one, a script that they already had. But in normal circumstances, 
you come up with a two or three page outline. And if they approved the outline and said go, then I would at that point do a detailed step outline, complete with page counts. It was basically a blueprint for where the story was going to go. You knew there were certain templates, certain beats that had to be in there, like the opening always had to be the unrelated action open that was basically a sequence that could be related to the rest of the film but frequently was not. It simply um, showed our hero was able to kick ass. And then the story proper would begin. It was very similar to the way the Bond films used to be structured, where you'd have the pre-credit sequence to kind of set up Bond as, you know, doing something cool, and then you'd, you'd have your main titles, and then, boom, you'd have Bond in M's office for a briefing, something's going on, and then, boom, we cut to the bad guys and see what they're starting to do. So the templates were pretty structured in terms of, of of the film. So I'd work that out. I'd incorporate any stock shot sequences that they may be buying to use in this particular film. And once I had that step out lane laid out, I had a blueprint um, in terms of, of where I would go. And then um, each day, I, 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 I would, it would took me about a week to get that together. And then each day, I would set up and do maybe five to ten pages a day. That was my cutoff. I had to do at least five, preferably ten pages a day. Didn't stop. If I had ideas for revisions, I'd just write them down because I never stop in the middle of the first draft to do revisions. i just go. So at the end of about two weeks, I'd have a first draft completed that was not ready to turn in. Uh, and then I would take about a week to polish that, basically doing a second draft, although I'd still call it a first draft. And I'd do the revisions, I'd polish it, I'd polish the dialogue. And then I'd turn it in. That Usually that process was about four weeks. And uh, I'd turn it in and then um, get notes. Uh, my scripts were usually ready to, to go to a production board to break down the first draft, which was always helpful. They knew they could take one of my scripts and immediately start doing the production board and breaking it down, doing the day out of days and things like that. Second draft would be more actor-friendly. You know, I try to punch up the dialogue even more and punch up the characters even more and make it attractive because the second draft is what would go out to the casting agencies. And then the third draft would be a trim down. Um, and, and revisions in terms of maybe some scenes suddenly were written as night scenes, were going to be day scenes, uh, one character was being eliminated, another one added, that sort of thing. And that basically production and budget trims and changes. That would be the third draft. And then the fourth draft would be um, just a polish, and then we'd shoot. Now, when, when, when many of these outlines or these ideas are brought to you, I imagine are specific actors also in mind for those roles, and are you having to write, you know, write those scripts, draft the scripts with that particular actor in mind, or does that go to the casting agent? How does that work? Sometimes, sometimes you say they say, okay, this is going to be with such and such and such and such. So you, you at that point you would look at some of the actors' other work and say, okay, um, let's look at some of his films. Uh, Let's see what I liked and didn't like. Let's do some research and see what he liked or didn't like, and then try to 
um, try to come up with something that that was unique to the kind of work that that he did. That was sometimes. Other times, other times you'd have an idea. I remember the first movie I ever wrote for Andrew Stevens um, was uh, a movie called, or the second movie, the first action film I wrote for him was a movie called Scorpio One. It was Jeff Speakman and, and Robert Carradine. And I knew they were going to be in it. But I didn't get much out of the Speakman films I'd seen. I kind of got an idea of what he was capable of. Carradine, uh, um, I knew, was a brilliant actor. And I read the script, and the script was unworkable and because they'd given me a script that somebody had written for them, and it was even unfinished. And I told Andrew, I said, I, I can't do anything with this, but i tell you what, I have an idea for a, a space shuttle movie. That's what it was supposed to be. And I asked him if he remembered the Alistair McLean novel and film, Ice Station Zebra, and he said yes, and I said let's do that in, in outer space, and so that was basically what we did. Uh, so that's sometimes the ideas come that way. There was a movie called Militia with Dean Kane and uh, Frederick Forrest and Jennifer Beals and Stacy Keats that I did, and that actually had been a spec script that I had written under a different title that I brought into Cinetel, and they bought it immediately so it varies and then the doll things and how those came about were another thing entirely now what about um looking at the film mock 2 in particular was that one taylor made specifically for brian bosworth or did that just fall into his lap no that was a case where they simply hired him and um i looked at a couple of, there was a biker movie he did in the 80s, and Stone Cold. Stone Cold, yes, I Stone love Cold. That movie. I absolutely <laughs> love that movie. And one yes. of the things I noticed early on was that Bosworth had a, a flair for, for comedy. And so I had a rough idea of, of the story they wanted, which involved, that was a stock shot movie. It was built around stock footage of the Concorde from Airport 79, and they had that. And they wanted to make, write a movie about the hijacking of the Concorde and terrorists and so forth. And so with Brian's character, he's supposed to be a pilot, and he's the guy that saves the day. But I was trying to come up with something that would take advantage of his talent for um, for humor and would make the character more interesting. And I learned that the Air Force not only has pilots, they also have sort of a ground special ops force. Um, that does, you know, ground insertions and, and, and special ops missions. And they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily pilots. And I thought, well, what if Brian is playing a guy that trained as a pilot, but he washed out because he's afraid of flying? <laughs> and, and he literally gets physically sick with the thought of even riding on an airplane. And so that's kind of the character that I came up with. And I thought, it would be fun for him to play with the irony that here's a guy that washed out. That was even his nickname in the service. And he's got to be the guy ultimately that lands a Concord and saves everybody. And I thought that would be an interesting, quirky thing. Oh, cool. Well, and before we get to command performance, because <laughs> that, that is a film that I, I would say is probably one of my favorites. Um, but I would be kicking myself if I didn't ask you about a project with Lundgren that you worked on uh, years prior to command performance, Agent Red. And it's my understanding that you did a rewrite on this film. Is that right? Here's what happened with Agent Red. 
Damien Lee, a director from Canada, who who uh, he'd also I think he did Food of the Gods too, and uh, he was he was an independent producer director that was making some films for for Andrew Stevens, and Andrew had made a deal with Dolph Lundgren uh, to make this film Agent Red, which was about the theft was involved a Russian submarine and the theft of a chemical agent, chemical weapon that would wipe a bunch of people out. And Damien had shot the film, had a fairly extensive cast. Dolph, uh, I remember, um, was it Kevin Ty from, from Emergency TV series? I, um, I always mix up the two guys. But one of the guys from Emergency was in it, and they'd shot most of the film. They'd shot it all. I think the cut I saw was 100 and, 100, 110 minutes, 100 minutes maybe. Um, but it was unreleasable. Um, they'd run out of time. They'd run out of money. The action was confusing. The the structure was bad to where I remember 40 or 50 minutes of it was just all dialogue. Uh, the opening didn't have any kind of oomph to it. Um, there were entire halves of conversations that had never been shot. Like, like characters would be talking to Soviet officials, but you'd never see the Soviet officials side of the question. I mean, it was just, it wasn't releasable. And um, it was sort of a crisis situation, and the film needed to be fixed, and Andrew Stevens approached um, Jim Minorsky and I, and what he wanted us to do was figure out how to, he was going to pay for three days of additional photography. He wanted to stock it up, which means find some stock footage action sequences to beef up the film's action quotient and uh, and shoot the other half of some of these conversations and shoot some new footage to sort of explain what was going on because the, the first cut was very confusing in terms of the storyline. So it's it sort of, the movie became sort of culled from a lot of garbage cans to try to, uh, to beef it up. Uh, it became... Actually, i got to tell you, there's a backstory to this. I had written a submarine movie with a similar plot for Andrew Stevens that Fred Owen Ray directed a couple years earlier called Countermeasures with Michael Dudikoff. And I was at a party about a year after, a year or two after Countermeasures, a party at Fred's house, and Andrew came up to me and he said, how would you like to redo Countermeasures for Dolph Lundgren? And I said, uh, I said, sure, what, what's it pay? And he said, well, you know, I mean, the script's already written. you just got to change some names and things like that. And I said, well, the page counts is still going to be the same. So it was obvious I wasn't going to do it and not get paid for it, so I never heard from it again. The next time I heard from it was in 2000 when we got contacted that they, they had attempted to do Agent Red, which in essence was a remake of countermeasures. And it was problematic, and they asked us to come in and fix it. So, okay. So that's that was the origin for that story. So, so we cut about forty minutes of it. We got it to where we only saved about sixty minutes of the film from the original film, and we shot forty new minutes, including the stock footage. And we we had a 
cue, we used a huge ship explosion sequence from uh, of Jeff Bridges' anti-terrorist movie that I, the name escapes me. Uh, we recreated an, a new Dolph Lundgren action open using stock footage from Stormcatcher and um, I think um, another action film, um, Solo. I don't know if you remember. Okay. That. Yeah, Mario Van Peebles, right? Right. We used stock from that. Um, we created some other action sequences. They actually took one whole 10 minute submarine sequence from countermeasures and just dropped it right into this film. <laughs> Literally just, they just took Fred's whole 10 minute sequence and just plopped it right in the middle. We shot additional scenes with Dolph and, and one, we, we shot one scene with Dolph and uh, an actor named Stephen Mock, where Mock was his military boss and he was kind of explaining for Dolph and the audience's sake what was about to transpire, why he had to get on this submarine and save the day. And at one point, and it was cool for me because the very first film set I'd ever been on in 1980, through the kindness of a relative, my, my step-uncle's brother was a film writer-producer named Ron Cohen, and he was writing and producing a 90-minute TV movie pilot for ABC called American Dream in Chicago, and I got to hang out on the set. Stephen Mock was the star of that. So I got reunited with Stephen on the set of Agent Red in scenes that I had written, which was very cool. But there's, I actually wrote for this scene with Dolph and Stephen Mock. He's, Dolph is getting his briefing, and at one point, um, Stephen asked him, so have you heard of Agent Red? <laughs> and Dolph's response was, it sounds like a bad action movie. And I had put that in the script as a joke, but they actually shot it, and it's in the film. Yes, I was going to – that is probably one of my favorite parts of the movie, yeah, as I was yeah, going to ask, was that in the original script? Yeah, everybody's deadpan. Uh, we saw all that stuff over the course of three days, and I, I had a polite introduction with Dolph at the time, um, but we didn't really talk much. And I've never I've – never I don't recall having ever talked to him about that film. Because it wasn't, it's not a shining star on either one of us. <laughs> but we did get a film that at the end of the day was, was releasable, that at least plays like an action film now. So Yeah. Has a beginning, middle, and an end. A lot of garbage cans. So Yeah. Well, let's talk about Command Performance. I'm curious, how did that project come about? Because I love the film. Uh, this is an example of how much creative work Dolph puts in a film. And it kind of surprised me because I've worked with actors before that say, you know, uh, you want to write this with me and you end up doing all the heavy lifting. Um, and they get credit with you. I was originally, Andrew Stevens had, had hooked me. He was always a big, Andrew was always a big booster of mine. He gave me a tremendous amount of work. And um, he, he said, he approached me, he said, how would you like to do a Dolph Lundgren film? He said, Dolph's working on something now, and he needs the script punched up. And um, the movie was being shot, I believe, down in Texas, and it was called, I think, Missionary Man's. Right. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. And so he hooked me up with Dolph via email, and I had some communications back and forth, and Dolph sent me the, the beautiful presentation 
booklet, which was a booklet that had all of these great this art concept art for the film. And he sent me the script. And he said, Would you mind, you know, going over the script? It's another writer, Dolph Lick didn't write it. And taking a look at it and, and Andrew thinks he'd be a good person to rewrite this script. And um I read it. And Dolph had I think already done a rewrite on it if I'm not mistaken. And I read it and I looked it over. And I gave him my notes, which were brief and to the point. I said, you know, you could do this, I would do this, I would do this and this. And then he said, are, are you interested in rewriting it? And I told him in the email, I said, I, frankly, I think the changes I'm suggesting are are minor. You're more than happy to have them for free, but I think you've already got the script um, close to where it needs to be, and I would I would be taking advantage of you if, if I signed on to rewrite this, because I don't think it needs a rewrite. So there you go. Um and I, maybe that struck a chord that, you know, because I, you know, I, could, I couldn't in good conscience take the money because I didn't feel like I could add that much to it. Um, it was already almost there. So that was that. I didn't hear from them again for, I think, a year or two. And then I got a call from him, said, I'm, I'm in town. I'm down at the W in West Hollywood. He always likes to stay there. And he said, I want to talk to you about another project. So I went down there and met him one time once. And then he said, okay, I've got, and he told me that he had this ongoing relationship with the Russians and, and um, production over there in Romania and in Russia. And he had three different scripts that could be shot over there, or three different stories that could be shot over there. And he'd like me to write one of them with him. And he, he gave me three treatments. And he said, have some coffee, sit down here and look through these three treatments. And he said, call me in my suite when you've, you've been through them to see which one you think you'd like to do. So I read them after through an endless cups of coffee. And of the three, the one that I connected with most, it sounded like the most fun, was this sort of, retro movie that would harken back to the action films of the 90s about an ex-biker turned rock and roll drummer that just happens to be able to kick a lot of ass and (laughs) and he's actually in the middle of this concert in Moscow uh, when, uh, you know, it's the storyline with the premier and his family and the uh, Madonna-like a pop star all get kidnapped by these terrorists. And he's the one guy that can, uh, you know, it's diehard in the concert arena. It was, um, it sounded like it could be, if, if, if the right approach was taken, if we had fun with it, it sounded like it would be a lot of fun to do. So he came back down and I said, this command performance I really like. Now these outlines that he'd written were like 20 pages long each. They were incredibly detailed. This was not a guy that, you know, I remember having conversations with Speakman where he, he'd, he'd give you a paragraph that he was thinking, bouncing around in his head, and there wasn't much to it. But not to denigrate him, but that's just that wasn't his focus. But Dolph had had laid these stories out in in a lot of detail, 
And uh, so I, you know, I said, let's let's do command performance. I really like that. And we talked about the approach, and he he was on the same page. He wanted to have fun with it. He didn't want. He liked the the oddness of the guy that was a biker guy who who. I, it sort of foreshadows the Sons of Anarchy guys, because he was a biker who knew all these weapons and knew, knew all this hand-to-hand combat. He was just a biker, and now he was a rock and roll drummer, and, and Dolph liked the fact that that was a crazy backstory for this guy. He didn't want to do the standard, um, it, it's yet an ex-military guy, you know, who just happens to know all this special ops stuff. And he was into the, the whole retro approach and just to have some fun fun with it. And that's that's kind of where we went. Well, I've always loved the film. You know, it, like you said, it takes the traditional diehard, you know, scenario, but it has such style and such edge to it. You know, it adds its own unique twist and take on it. You know, I'm curious, in, in what ways did you and Dolph steer clear of it being a, a diehard copycat? Because it clearly, I mean, it, like you said, it follows that kind of formula, but it it steers way away from that. Um, there was lots of of little things that that we tried to throw in to make it different, and uh, I mean, it can't help but be like it. Uh, we did a lot of heavy study of um, the terrorist factions then active in Mos- Moscow and we and Russia, and we also did a lot of research on. Uh, on the um, the fall of, uh, of the USSR and you know the, the various factions at war with each other over there, the the, the you know the diehard conservatives that, that wanted the, the old Soviet Union back and the and the more liberal um, <clears throat> free market people and you know the, so we kind of got those mixes in there. So we did our research golf. I don't know if he's an honorary member of the FSB, but he has a connection. He's gotten a couple of certificates from what used to be their KGB, so he knows all those guys. And we wanted to present those guys as sort of real. You know, we didn't want to paint. We didn't want to paint these people as unrealistic. We wanted to kind of paint them as they were, and um, you know, have some reality there. Uh, and we tried to have as much fun with Dolph's character as possible. Uh, he wanted to be the rock and roll part. They wanted that authentic, and he's a pretty good drummer. Um, he he wanted to have fun with his character. He was the one that came up with the idea that that when the terrorist attack goes down, he's he's in the you know restroom smoking a joint. And has <laughs> to kind of kick into. You know, kick ass gear while he's stoned, still trying to adjust to what the hell's going on. Um, I think it was his idea to to. I had him kill somebody with uh, drumsticks. I think he's going to have to kill somebody with his drumsticks. <laughs> and Dolph, Dolph uh, came up with the idea that he he breaks a guitar all of Pete Townsend and then you know kills a guy with with the neck of the guitar. Um, you know, just different things to do. I, Dolph took credit for it in an interview he did when the film came out, but I came up with a line, dying is easy, rock and roll is hard, which is based on a quote from an English actor, I think Edmund Keane, who went on his deathbed, said, dying is easy, comedy is hard. 
But um, and that became, I think, the tagline for the film. Um, there's a great story about the um, the guitar neck thing. We, we had a I don't even know if I should tell this. Um, we had a screening of the first cut at the W Hotel a few months before the Berlin Film Festival. This would have been, I think, in 2010. Maybe it was 29. It was right after it was, the first cut was finished. And uh, we were showing it to a couple of German buyers. I'm not going to get into the story because it doesn't, it doesn't need to be in print, but I'll just say the German buyers really liked that scene. They, okay. They like that a lot. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was it was fun, and the writing process with Dolph, I would, I think I did the first draft, and then he, and I was over long, and then he, he trimmed, I think, 30 pages out of it for his version, and I'm looking at it, I'm seeing the difference in page count, I'm thinking, oh shit, what did he cut that I loved? And he didn't cut anything that I loved. He had a very good ability to sort of weed out the chaff and, and whittle it down to just the good stuff. So it was a very good working experience. And, and we, I think we spent a year doing various drafts. And he was able to set up the deal and get the financing and get the film made. So it worked out great. Would you work with Lundgren again if the opportunity arose? Sure. I, in a heartbeat. I, I, uh, it's been one of the most. It was one of the most pleasant working experiences of my life, and, and he's a very generous guy off off screen. I actually did work with him on a couple of projects after that. He had been approached to do a sequel to Universal, I think a third Universal Soldier, and then a fourth with Van Damme, and he wanted us to write those, and they were coming in with a writer director that was. But he wanted us to have a shot at getting a getting a new getting a chance to do the script that he wanted to do. So we uh, we actually wrote I think thirty pages of a third one and submitted it. Third one or the fourth one? I don't remember which. We I think we did an outline for the third one, but then they did their own with that writer director, and then they wrote a fourth script and they gave it to Dolphin. He looked that over, and then he came back to me, and he says, you know, I'm not sure about this. Let's let's actually write 30 pages of a script. So we did 30 pages for the fourth one, but they ended up going with what they had again. So, But uh, a couple of years after that, my, my brother back in Decatur, Illinois, is very heavily involved in youth hockey. And they had a, the Decatur, Illinois youth hockey team was heavily involved in uh, this national contest, and the national contest, I think first prize was going to be $150,000, which would allow the winner to, um, it was I think a pledge drive, um, and the winner the winner would get 150000 that money could be used for building a hockey arena, for the players, that kind of thing, youth hockey. And the second place was, I think, $75,000. And they were pushing it hard, and it's all nonprofit, and it's great for the kids, and it's a big deal in the Midwest and uh, and on the East Coast, and it, it, the youth hockey thing is really huge around the country. And they were getting down to the wire the last 
two to three weeks, and and I thought, you know, I wonder if I could uh, get some help from Dolph. And I wrote through his assistant, and I said, here's what's going on. And uh, we just need something to kind of take them over because they're getting close. And and Dolph was in Europe, and he was making a film, and very busy, tight schedule. But he had his assistant with him, and they sh- he set up and shot a photo, green year to year with a huge sign, that, you know, Dolph Lundgren says, support Decatur Youth Hockey Pledge Now, et cetera, and shot that photo and gave, us, gave it to us. And they posted it up, and the Decatur team ended up winning second prize. And, oh, cool. <laughs> it was great. And it was just something. He was in an intense schedule, and it was it was just a, it's the kind of guy he is, though. And he's just, you know, very generous, very smart, a great pleasure to work with. And great. What? He's one of the funniest guys I've ever been around, too. So. Yeah, that's what I hear. Is he has he has a great sense of humor, and uh, and a lot of the projects that he's taken within the past ten years have really allowed him to um, express his his acting his comedic chops. So well, that's the other thing is with, with command performance, he really wanted to try to just it's kind of like what John Wayne did in True Grit, where he kind of lampooned with Rooster Cogburn, his his classic um, craggy western hero. I mean. Dolph kind of wanted to play with his image in command performance a little bit, and he he does. I mean, he just he he has a lot of fun with that part, just sort of sending up his own own image in that film. What projects are you currently working on? Are you at liberty to say at all? Yeah, we actually formed a, a we're reissuing not reissuing we we did a film a couple of years ago called Return of the Killer Shrews, and we had some problems with the the overseas distributor didn't really market it. it. The film was made as a comedy, and they marketed it as a straight horror film. And so it didn't do very well overseas. And we had a nice little DVD release of it with a company called Retro Media, but we didn't do any TV sales, and we didn't do any kind of, you know, platform release on it, Netflix, screen, uh, you know, iTunes, et cetera, uh, because we kind of held those rights back because it was being marketed as a straight horror film, which was it was not. Um, we got the rights back to the film. We're now doing a, a domestic and an international platform release in the end of September, but releasing it as a comedy, the comedy that it was always made as. It's a 50-plus years later sequel to the original movie Killer Shrews, and it stars the original star of that film, James Best, as well as Bruce Davison and John Snyder. So... Looking forward to that in the fall. Um, I put together a production company with a couple of partners last year, and we've optioned about – we have some of our own projects, and we've optioned uh, three or four other scripts, and we're in the process of financing those now, so we're very excited about those. So, And it's, it's basically some historical stuff, some action stuff, and a couple of good horror films in the package, so we're – moving along with that stuff right now. I don't want to go into more detail in terms of the projects, but it's all very exciting. Very exciting. Very cool. Well, hey, Mr. Latshock, thank you so, so very much for, for your time. I really do appreciate it. Pleasure. Like I said, I, I admire so much of your work. The command performance in particular is, is certainly one of my favorites. So thank you for taking the time to, uh, to chat about your career and about these films with me today. All right, great. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.